that question. We had three people come out of the woodwork and just say, hey, I just have some time to volunteer. Like, could your church use like 15 hours a week? And I'm like, gee, I don't know. Could we? And, uh, and obviously, yes. And, and Matt was one of those guys. So just so generous. He's been uh, helping out as a sort of a volunteer uh, staff person who's been helping out with home church and all that. And he's also uh, a, sort of a, a former youth pastor. He's got a, a vocation in ministry and, um, and, and just an amazing heart. We really love him and really appreciate him. He's working on his master's in intercultural studies, correct? And uh, at Fuller? Fuller, yeah. And so just a, just a great, thoughtful, wonderful guy. And I really look forward to hearing what he has to say. Let's just, let's put, I put it, did I get enough of a halo on him there? <laughs> Father, bless Matt. Thank you so much for him. Uh, thank you so much for the word that's going to come through him in your holy name we pray. Amen, amen. Give him a big hand. Hello, hello, testing one, two, three. Okay, great. Yeah, it's been a little while since I've been entrusted with a microphone, so uh, I'm excited to see how this goes. Uh, as we've been uh, looking at the final week of Jesus' life during this Lent season, we've focused in on the final moments of teaching and training that Jesus has for his followers. As you can see by the slide up there, he's launching them out. So you could look at this as Jesus saying, before I leave, I want you to specifically remember these things. Uh, of everything that I've told you, remember these lessons in particular. This is what I want to leave you with. And so the last three sermons that we've heard here have been along those lines. So we looked at Jesus uh, being anointed by Mary with a pint of expensive perfume and the topic of living lives of extravagant worship in a context of those who don't understand. Uh, then it was Jake, and he looked a little bit later in John chapter 12, and Jesus was talking about his coming death, and he was talking about how his hour has come. And we asked the question, well, how does Jesus empower us to do hard things? And then last week, Aaron was speaking, and he looked closely at a really tricky text that talks about God blinding eyes and hardening hearts. And the question that we delicately drew out there was, how do we deal with the doubts and the wrestlings of those that we care for. So this week, we're diving into John chapter 13, and we're going to look at a text that is probably very familiar to us if you've been around churches a lot. And part of why it's so familiar is because it's a powerful text, and it's full of practical implication, but there's also a lot of depth in it. And because it's so familiar, I just want to give this warning just at the outset, we have to enter it carefully. There's a danger inherent in texts that we know well, and the danger is that we can assume that we already know everything that's going to be said. So the danger for me, as I'm reading it and as I'm studying, is that instead of really studying, and instead of listening for God to speak, I'm just assuming that I know what is being said. And the danger for you, as you listen, is that the familiarity of the text causes you to think, uh, yeah, so this guy's new, but yeah, I've, I've heard this all before. I know what this is. And uh, if you're new to church and this isn't something that you're used to, uh, well, I want to explain this piece, but and, and if you've just been in churches a lot, I think it's good to be reminded that the heart of what we're doing here is we're listening to what God is saying to us today. If God is real and if the Bible is his communication to us, and if this time is a way by which he speaks, then let us be sure as we enter this and as we dive into this that we are listening for God to speak to us through this. And that includes myself. So if you're here and you're uh, not someone who follows Jesus, 
I invite you to invite God to speak to you and then sincerely see if he speaks to you and listen for what he has to say. I mean, if God is real, then uh, you probably want to know that, so that's a good invitation to make. And uh, if he isn't real, then you really have nothing to lose by inviting him to speak to you and listening to see if that happens. It's a win-win situation. As we look at this text, we're going to look at it through the lens of servanthood and community. So one of the questions that we're going to be asking as we go through this is, how does a right posture towards community help us to live clean in this world? And don't worry if you're like, well, that was a lot of words. It'll be up there soon enough. And uh, I want to mention one last thing before we really dive into the meat of what we're talking about. Here's just a general principle. Whenever we look at a text and it involves Jesus, it's probably best not to assume that we're the Jesus character in this story. (laughs) And so along those same lines, everything that I'm going to be talking about will be defeated, and the purpose of it will be lost. If you sit there thinking, and if I preach it thinking, you know who should really hear this? So-and-so. I really hope they're listening and not falling asleep like they normally do, because this is so good for them. The right way to apply what we're going to be talking about is to search our own hearts and to see if it applies to us. And if we all do that, then God's Spirit can transform us and can apply what Jesus is teaching, and we'll be transformed together as a community. So uh, let's start out by reading the text. It seems like a good place to start. It'll be on the screen behind me. Boom. So, uh, John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said that not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. 
So let's start right at the very beginning. So it's just before the Passover meal. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus has less than a week left to live, and he knows it. He knows that he's going to die, and he also knows how he's going to die. So one of the people that is closest to him on earth is going to betray him. Judas is going to reveal that he's been plotting against Jesus, and he's going to give Jesus over to his enemies so that he can, they can put him to death. Judas was willing to trade his relationship with Jesus for a couple hundred dollars. And this verse stands kind of as a banner over the top of the text. It says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And I think it's right to hear Jesus' love for his disciples in this. He spent three years almost constantly with these guys, pouring into them, teaching them, eating with them, dealing with Peter, sharing life together with them. And he has loved them, even Judas. And he's going to continue to love them right up until the end of his life. And so it's in the context of Jesus' love for his disciples that he's going to be giving them, and by extension, us, a lesson and an example on the kind of people that we ought to be as we act as his representatives in the world. So the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, so he got up from the meal He took off his outer clothing, he wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so the foot washing in the story is going to seem more strange to you and to me than it would have been for them. There's definitely a cultural element here. Uh, Nowadays, very few people are going to wash someone else's feet unless you're an esthetician. However, when this is happening, people wore sandals everywhere, right? And the feet would get extremely dirty. So washing someone's feet is the courteous action of a host who's doing their utmost to make sure that you're comfortable. One key piece here is that it is also the dirtiest and the lowest of jobs. So usually the lowest ranking servant, that would be the person who wipes the dirt, the grime, the horse manure off of people's feet. So the text doesn't say this. Uh, So we don't know, but maybe the scene looks similar to this. Maybe they're tired and they're hungry and they enter the place where they're going to eat some supper. And maybe Peter washes Jesus' feet and then sits down. And meanwhile, everyone else also kind of sits down. And uh, then this awkward moment kind of settles on the crowd as they're all looking at each other. And they're like, Peter, are you going to wash the rest of our feet? And he's looking at them like, well, no, I'm better than you. You guys can, like, the youngest should probably wash our feet. And so they're all sitting there, and there's this awkward moment until something happens. And Jesus gets up, and Jesus takes off his robe, and Jesus begins to wash their feet. And everyone is shocked as Jesus begins to do this, because a master and a teacher is not someone who does this. This is reserved for the lowest of servants. This is a very low thing, and you see this huge gap between who Jesus is and what he is doing here. And then verse 3 that we read is going to take this theme of this huge discrepancy between Jesus' station and his performing of this task, and it's going to multiply that gap by approximately a million. It's going to say, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he washed their feet. So if the disciples were shocked to see their teacher and their master doing this, the writer of John says, get this. This is a crazy thing if a teacher and a master is washing the feet of his disciples. 
But this is God himself. This is Jesus who upholds the world by the word of his power, who created all things. This is God himself stooping down to wash the feet of the disciples. This is the God of the universe taking the lowest of social stations, serving the disciples. And we're going to jump to verse 12 because this is where Jesus explains what it means. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. So if you were wondering why Jesus, why God himself was stooping to wash the disciples' feet, he explains why right here. He says, I have set you an example, the disciples, and by extension, us. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Being God, Jesus went from being supremely high to performing the task of a low servant, and he did it to teach the disciples that his kingdom, Jesus' way of doing things, is different than how others do things. So in their culture and in our culture, when you have status, there are some things that you just don't have to do. People will do things for you. Positions come with perks. Kings don't have to walk everywhere. Presidents don't have to take public transit. Successful business people do not have to get their own coffees. There are things that are beneath your position or that you can opt out of. So what does this mean for God? God himself does not have to serve us. God does not have to listen to our prayers. He is not required to do that. He does not have to love us. He did not have to be incarnated as Jesus. And as Jesus, he did not have to do the lowest of jobs. He did not have to serve the disciples. Even the disciples thought that they were above this. And it's one of the perks of being God that you don't have to do these things, but he does. And he does as an example to us. And his example says, you are to be a people that steps down from privilege and engages in serving one another. Your mindset should not be a mindset of privilege. It's not a mindset that asks, what is my position in relation to this person and what do they owe me? Or I'm offended because this person isn't treating me the way that I should be treated or I think I should be treated. Do you know who I am? Our mindset ought to be, how can I serve this person? How can I serve you? How can I serve and bless the community in which God has placed me? And so Jesus is saying, in this whole section, he's saying, I'm going away and you are becoming my representatives. And this is what you ought to be like. You are to be a people who step down from privilege. You're to be a people who engage in serving one another. Let your whole life be in the mindset of serving. And so questions that should be really common to us if we're going to follow Jesus should be questions like, are we a servant? Are our hearts in a place of service? Are we focused on lifting other people up? Are we asking the question, how can I strengthen? How can I bless? How can I be of use? How can I represent Jesus well? Because that's what Jesus is commissioning. That's his example. That's the action of washing feet. I think one of the things that you see in this action is humility. 
You see the King of kings. You see the Son of God who did not think that it was beneath him to do the humblest of jobs of the lowest of servants. And I think that's pretty important, so I just want to reflect on that a little bit. Uh, People will often contrast pride with humility. And I think they're right to do that. I think that makes sense. Uh, We know that God commands humility. So 1 Peter will say, clothe yourselves with humility. We also know that God hates pride. Um, Some people will say, oh, before we go there, we'll say, what is humility? That's probably a good question to ask. What does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? So some people are going to say, well, humility is a lowering of yourself or an abasing of yourself. And uh, I don't like that definition. I think that makes humility more of an action than a state of being. Like, I think it makes sense in the, in the relation to the idea of pride. If pride is up here and you're going to be made humble, there is a lowering. So I agree with that. But I think you look around in this world or you have friends or you know people that just grovel in the dirt and are like, I am nothing and I am a worm and nothing I say or do matters. And I do not think that that's what humility is. I don't think that's what God wants. I don't think God looks at that and is like, that's a good thing. So the best definition that I've come up with of what humility is, is that it's to recognize who you are before God, and then to act in accordance with that. In contrast to pride, I think pride is thinking that you're someone that you're not, and acting in accordance with that. So what does that mean? That means when you're humble, you know you're made in the image of God, according to the Bible. You know you're made in the image of God. You know that you're unique. You know that you're loved. You know that you intrinsically have value just by existing. You know that you don't have to pretend to be something that you're not because you're loved. Uh, You know that you matter. And those are the positive sides of humility. There's a little bit of a negative side too, and this is what this is. You also know you're limited. You know that you don't know everything. You know that there's room to grow and learn and pursue God. You know that you've done stupid, hurtful things, and that you've hurt yourself, and that you've hurt the people around you, and that you're not perfect, and that you're what the Bible would refer to as a sinner, that's someone who has a broken relationship with God. There's been a turning away. So that's humility that I think is evident in here, and I think you can also see love. Uh, So we mentioned right at the beginning of this passage that this whole piece is an example of how Jesus continues to love the disciples right up until his death. And so he's serving them. He's loving them. He's doing this for his friends in this last week before he dies and is parted from them. And our mindset ought to be one of love. Love is also an overused word that probably requires definition because it doesn't mean the same thing as I love my puppy dog that I almost brought a picture and put it up here, but I didn't. You're welcome. I think love is a desiring what is best for someone. So our mindset ought to be one of how can I serve? How can I love? How can I bless the people around me? How can I bless the church? How can I bless the community? How can I love them? What will be best for this person? What will be best for OVV? What will be best for Carlton Place? How can we move towards that together? How can we serve in love? And I think the furthest thing from, uh, from love is probably asking, what can I get? What is good for me? What am I getting out of this? I want to stop there. I think those are legitimate questions. And I think that they're good to get an answer to. But I think if it stops there, 
And if we never progress past those questions, if we never get to a place where we're asking what is best for OVV, what is best for Carlton Place, what is best for the kingdom of God, uh, then we are not acting in love. And I think Jesus looks at us and says, you are not following my example that I told you to follow. And I'm sure there's a level of disappointment and sadness in that. One of the lenses that we wanted to use to look at this passage, I said right at the beginning was sermonhood and community, and I said that sentence, and you were like, wait, what? What did you say? So I wrote it out. How does a right posture towards community help us to live clean in this world? And we're going to get to that clean, unclean bit in a little bit. Uh, but so far, what does this story say to this question? I mean, to tell you right now, it doesn't tell, me, tell you how many services you should have. It doesn't tell you the program you should run. It doesn't tell you whether you, well, I won't go there, but it won't tell you whether you should check up on Susie or not. It doesn't tell you whether you should build a new church building. But what it does say is that our posture as we engage church life should be one of humility and love. Uh, so let's deep dive on that. Humility says that when we talk with each other, we should never devalue that person. How dare we do that? Humility says we have to listen to each other. We have to hear each other out. We don't know everything. We can't know everything. We're in this together. If you like controversy, this is going to be the most controversial statement I'm going to make, so you can flag this. We need to admit that we could always be wrong. To think that we're 100% right is to close the door to wisdom. It's to close the door to reconciliation. It's to harden your heart. To think that you're 100% right is to forget that you are limited. We need to be honest with each other. Uh, disagreement is a good thing. That's why I flagged that last point. We're secure in God. We don't need to wear masks with each other. Uh, we have all that we could want in God. He fulfills us. He's we have everything that we could want in there. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then you're welcome to be. Please, please join us. Uh, but if you are a follower of Jesus, humility also says you're brothers and your sisters, and we're in this together, so let's figure it out together. And humility will finally say, we are broken people, and there needs to be space for forgiveness, and there needs to be space for redemption. Um, otherwise, what are we doing? We're all done for. So I think that's what humility says to our posture of community. Let's talk about love. I think love says that we have to be asking the question of what is best for the people around me? What is best for OVV? How can we best love our pastor? How can we best love our leaders? How can we best love the people stuck in here for the next however long this is going to be together with us? How can we love those people? Um, and I think... Love also says that we will ask, how can we love Carlton Place? How can we live in this community? And how can we be a blessing to it? How can we seek the good of the place that we find ourselves? How can we join God? Because he's already working. How can we join God in what he's already doing in this community? How do we get to a place where the community of Carlton Place, they look at us and they're like, those people bring light. Those people bring peace. Those people, we're glad that they're here. How do we get to that place where we're being Jesus and we're loving and we're serving in love? 
And uh, so part of what's being said here is that we're to be a people of humility, we're to be a people of love as we serve each other and as we serve those around us. And, and if we're going to follow Jesus, uh, he has not left us the choice to not do this. Uh, he's given us this example and told us quite explicitly that we are to follow this example. So, hypothetical. Well, uh, what happens if instead of following Jesus' example of love and humility, we decide mm, not to? Like, yeah, I know you say that, Jesus, but you don't know this person. Like, they're a, that, that's a bad human. Like, you don't understand. And I think this is where it's helpful to highlight Judas in the story. The evening meal was in progress. We read this. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And I'm using the NIV this morning. That's what you're reading. It uses the word prompted. The devil had prompted Judas to betray Jesus. The ESV is going to say the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And the thought here is that Satan works by casting seeds of evil into the hearts of those that he tempts. And that Judas received this seed and he let it grow and he let it mature and it grew and grew until it turned into betrayal. And the same danger exists for us. Ephesians 4.27 will say, do not give a foothold to the devil. Meaning, don't give him space to influence you for evil. And Judas allowed this seed that was planted in him to mature into evil. He let it grow. He watered it instead of tearing it out. Instead of stomping on it, he nurtured it. And the fruit of that was bitterness and fear and resentment. The fruit of that was betrayal of the Son of God. And uh, we sometimes like to think that it doesn't really matter uh, what we do. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? Like, sure, I told a little white lie. Or, uh, you know, hmm, that's just a bad human and I don't like them. Oh, we just don't get along. Or, uh, but you know how she is, right? But that's simply not true. Our decisions matter. And our decisions really do affect things. And Aaron was talking about this last week. We talked about God hardening the hearts and blinding the eyes. And the meaning there is that when we choose to do something, God respects our choice. And not only does he respect it, he empowers it. He respects our ability to choose so much that he will let it happen even though he doesn't want to. So if we turn away from God and we say, oh, that's nice, but I want to do my own thing, thanks. He says, you're choosing to harden your heart. And because I love you, I will let you do that. And so if we're not acting in love, and if we're not acting in humility, then we're helping the other team. And instead of promoting peace, and instead of promoting goodness, and instead of promoting light, we're promoting darkness, pain, evil. That's, that's weighty. And I'm talking to myself too here. Don't hear me talking only to, it's not like, well, I know what side I'm on. I'm talking to myself. Well, what happens if instead of following Jesus' example of love and humility, we decide not to? If we act out of pride, if we act out of self-interest, we nurture those seeds of evil. We allow them to flourish. We allow them to mature. And at first, this is what it looks like. On the personal level, it fills us with bitterness and pride and nitpicking and a harsh criticism that doesn't seek to build up but seeks to tear down and lying and all these other things. That's on the personal level. That's at first. 
And then these things begin to grow. And then they begin to mature. And then they poison our community. And so factions develop in our church. And our culture becomes one where we cannot trust each other. And once trust is gone, uh, we're done for. And we begin to eat each other from the inside out. And Jesus is saying, nurture love. Nurture humility. Do not let evil mature in you. Pursue love. Pursue humility. Kill the evil that is planted in you. Kill it with truth. Kill it with love. Kill it with service. Kill it with your identity in Christ. Kill it with everything that you can. Kill it for yourself. Kill it for the sake of God's church in the world. Kill it for the people of Carlton Place. Uh, There's a section we haven't touched on yet. Now we go there. Starting verse 6. Jesus was washing their feet, right? He comes to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, as I click my reminder to remind me tomorrow, Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said that not everyone was clean. So there's a second level to this text that sits under this example of love and humility that Jesus gives. So Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples and then he gets to Peter, right? And Peter, not understanding what's going on, simply says, no, I won't accept it. Definitely not. And Jesus could have said, shut up and sit down. You're ruining the object lesson. (laughs) And Peter probably would have done it. But he says something different. Jesus says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Wow. Well, that's a little bit extreme, isn't it? I mean, like, if I won't let you wash my feet, then we can't be friends. Like, I'm out of your life for good. Like, that's it? Uh, Isn't that a bit much? And that seems to be how Peter understands it, because Peter immediately comes back saying, okay, like, anything but that. I don't want to be separated from you. You can wash my feet. You can wash my hands. You can wash my head. You can wash all of me, Jesus. And this is where I like to imagine that Jesus says, no. (laughs) He doesn't say no. But he redirects Peter's enthusiasm here, and he says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash and is completely clean except for his feet. And you are clean, so I don't need to bathe you, Peter, but not every one of you. And so the first question to understand what's happening here is uh, probably, so when Jesus is talking about washing people, is this a metaphor, or is he literally talking about washing them? Uh, and uh, let's just deal with that first. Uh, so firstly, it would be kind of ridiculous for, Peter to say, for Jesus to say to Peter, uh, unless you let me wash your feet, not metaphorically, but literally, unless I wash your feet, we're done. Like, that just doesn't really fit with Jesus' character. It's kind of this odd, like, that's, what? What are you talking about? So I'm going to say that that points towards a deeper me- meaning because it seems kind of ridiculous on the service, surface. And then I'm going to say also near the end, verse 11, Jesus says, all of them are clean, but one. 
which in context is Judas, who's going to betray him, and it explains that. Uh, And I think we can be pretty sure that Jesus is not saying, that Judas over there, he's going to betray me. And you know how? You know how you know that? It's because he's a smelly person that doesn't clean himself. I think we can be pretty sure that that's not what Jesus says. And all that points to the fact that he's referring to something else. So what Jesus is talking about here, when he uses the language clean, unclean, is probably whether someone is following him or not. So the Christian story is one that proposes, it says there is a problem with the world. Most worldviews are going to say that. There's some kind of problem. Well, what is it? The Christian story says the problem with the world is that God created us. He designed us to live in communion with him and with others. And that's where our fulfillment is to live in a way of humility and in a way of love. And instead, what happens is we turn our back on that and we break that relationship and we say, thanks, but no thanks. And we live contrary to that. And so we live for ourselves. And so we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. And we live contrary to how we were designed to live. It's like if you put uh, windshield washer fluid in your gas tank. We live in a way that it, it just doesn't work. That's not what we were created for. We were not created to pursue that. That's why there's a hole. That's why there's a need. That's why there's something that we're pursuing or we're chasing after. There's a feeling of there's something more. There's a cross pressure in our culture that says there has to be something else. There has to be something more. And this is what the Christian story says that it is. And this relationship with God is broken because of something called sin. We need it to be restored. So we have wronged God. We need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. We need to be brought close to God again if we're going to live life the way that we were designed to live it. And uh, the Christian story is that Jesus makes this possible. And one of the word pictures about how Jesus makes this, this possible is that our sin is washed away and we are made holy. And I think this is how Jesus is using this language of cleaning here. He says, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. What that means is without Jesus, we cannot be made right with God. Our sin must be washed away. And if he does not wash us, then we have no part with him. He then makes a second statement, which uh, causes me to scratch my head. Still a little bit, but it says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet and is completely clean. So following our interpretation from above, the language of cleaning, referring to being restored, being forgiven, it seems that he's saying two things. He says, if, you, if I have washed you, you are completely clean. If I have washed you, your sin is washed away. There's nothing left to wash. You are restored to God. You are in relationship with God. There's nothing left to be done. I do not have to wash you a second time. If you are clean, you do not need more washings. It's a, it's a once-for-all thing. You are clean. Accept that. Embrace it. And then the second statement here, this is a confusing part, says, well, except for your feet. Okay, so if we're clean when Jesus washes us, what does it mean that we still have to wash our feet? Uh, And I really wish I could spend more time on this whole section, although I'm sure you guys don't think that. But I'll uh, jump right to how I understand it instead of playing with a bunch of other questions that could come up, okay? So whenever we run into pieces of the Bible that we're not sure what they mean, oh, that's tricky, well, let's uh, use other pieces of the Bible and see if it helps explain what's going on here. So this is where I turn to 1 John 1.9. Keep in mind that this verse, John, the guy who's writing it, is writing to Christians. So he's writing to people that are already clean in Jesus' words. 
And this is what he says. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the one who follows Jesus then is completely clean when they've come to him asking for forgiveness, asking to follow him, saying, we want to be with you, we want to be restored to God. However, you'll remember that when we were talking about humility, that a part of humility is that we are not perfect. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to screw up. We are going to hurt each other. And that's whether we follow Jesus or not. That's simply a part of the human experience. That's just what happens. And when we do screw up and when we do sin, we need to confess it. We need to go to Jesus, asking him to wash our feet. The mistakes that we make, they don't make us unclean. If we come to Jesus, he's washed us, and we're like, we want to follow you, we want to know you, and he's like, welcome back. If we get to that point, these mistakes do not make us unclean, but we do have to deal with sin. We do have to deal with the dirt that gets on our feet. We need to confront sin. We need to not be okay with it. We need to drag sin into the light and to kill it. And I use that language intentionally. It's dramatic. Uh, We need to take it seriously. And maybe that involves counseling. Maybe it involves every tool that we have at our disposal so that we can actually kill it because it really is that serious and it really is more important than our pride. And we need to be quick to apologize knowing that we screw up. So Jesus is calling us to be his representatives, right? He's saying, if you follow me, be like me. Here's my example. Do this. And he's calling us to love. He's calling us to humility. He's calling us to being quick to say that we're sorry. And this is the way that his kingdom runs. This is the way that his kingdom is built. And if we reject these things, we are working for the enemy. If we reject these things, we are sowing pain. We are sowing disunity. We are sowing darkness. Uh, And uh, we're getting close to the end. In regard to our specific question, We asked, how does a right posture towards community help us to live clean in this world? Humility calls us to abandon our pride. See our place as we interact with each other. Um, That's, yeah, we talked about that, but a place of, of knowing we're broken, a place of knowing that we're made in the image of God, but also knowing that we don't know everything. Love calls us to think about and to ask What is best for the other? Being quick to apologize and ask forgiveness calls us to own our mistakes. It calls us to kill sin. It calls us to contribute to a culture of grace and forgiveness. And uh, in this particular story, uh, I see Jesus standing there with open arms, and uh, I see him inviting us as individuals And as OVV, I hear him saying, come into the way that he does things. I hear him saying, come into the way that my kingdom works. I hear him saying, this is where you will find life and health. This is to be a place of love and humility as you struggle together and you try to figure out what it means to be the church today. This is a place where you ought to be quick to say you're sorry, quick to ask forgiveness, because you all need it, and I give it. Speaking as Jesus, I'm not giving anybody forgiveness. It doesn't work that way. I hear Jesus saying, come to me. I love you. 
follow me and follow the example that I set for you. And you will see my power transform you and the community around you. And you will truly be my representatives in Carlton Place. Amen. Yeah, that's, that's it. That's all I got. <laughs>